I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Thompson, and you're listening to Grillin' Jr. with the voice of wrestling, the Hall of Famer himself, good old Jim Ross. Jim, how are you, man? I'm great, Connie. I'm great. I'm glad to, it's good to hear your voice. Thanks to all that are listening. We appreciate your support, as always. We think we've got a pretty good show lined up for you here today. But man, I tell you what, I've been uh, I've, I've been running both ends against the middle the last few weeks. These trips to Miami and back to Oklahoma, and then from Oklahoma to, to Nassau. Uh, going through hell to do that, and then, you know, then you, then you go from the Nassau weather to the Cleveland weather. It's a it's an adventure for a 68 year old guy that I wouldn't trade for a damn thing. So let's talk about why we're really here today. Of course, it's Royal Rumble 2005. This past weekend uh, was Royal Rumble 2020, and we know how that went now. But today is the exact 15 year anniversary from Fresno, California, 12,000 fans on hand there at the save Mart center. And, uh, man, this show is notable for so many reasons. Let's get into it. But before we do, let's talk about some news and notes heading into the show, including something that when I was doing my research stood out like a sore thumb. Wade Keller would write Rob Van Dam initially told VP of talent relations, John Laurinaitis, that he did not want to accept the invitation to travel to Iraq for the holiday special. Laurinaitis then instructed Van Dam to tell Vince McMahon personally, <laughs> RVD took his advice and did not back down while spe- speaking to McMahon. McMahon made it clear he was not happy with the decision and Van Dam's reasons for staying home were not due to political views or concern over safety, but rather because he simply wanted a week off from WWE's travel schedule. This is something that's been discussed a lot over the years and RVD has even done several interviews about it. What do you remember about this? Because something in here really stands out to me. Yeah. Uh, why, uh, the VP of talent relations had the talent go to talk to Vince is a failed experiment from the get go. That's weird. Why, why the head, why the head of talent didn't go himself and say, by the way, one of the guys RVD doesn't want to go to, to Iraq. And the, here's the thing. Well, first of all, managers should re- protect their talents, especially you don't throw one in a dog, pit, a dog pen with a guy like Vince, who's very patriotic and will not look at this, uh, you know, decision to not go favorably in any light. It's a, it's a damn loser from the get go. This that, that process. It's really remarkable that, that that's what he would pitch or present. What do you remember hearing from Vince about this? Was there any heat on Van Dam over this? Of course, of course there was Vince looked at it as a unpatriotic act more or less. And look, I admire and always have, uh, Vince McMahon's patriotism. 
Uh, and the, the United States should love him because he pays a shitload of taxes, <laughs> but, uh, and I know he, he, he's legit about his love of Dr. Martin Luther King. Amen to that. But you know, sometimes you can take this stuff too far. Here's the deal. Here's how you, here's how I would address that. Vince, he doesn't want to go. He's not comfortable going. I don't have to give him any reasons unless Vince asks me, that's all he needs to know. He doesn't want to go. And so we can force him to go, uh, or he can violate his contract. And then all of a sudden who wins in that pissing contest? Nobody. We got a roster full of people that are talented, popular, and have name identity that these soldiers would be grateful to see. It's not a Rob band. He's not the whole, he's not the whole, the whole effing show on this trip. So, uh, you know, I, I, tribute to the troops is a unique deal. It's, it's an ensemble cast. So there are a lot of talents that could have gone without making this big, you know, issue and having Rob go talk to Vince. I didn't, I just didn't understand that logic. Maybe Lauren Adams had a good reason. If you did, it might be one of his early first ones, but nonetheless, I don't know what the th thought was. You and I talked about this a little bit before we went on the air. Managers don't do that, Conrad. You, uh, would you do that? No. So anyhow, but yeah, but Rob, I don't know that Rob ever quite really got over all that. You know, I, I might be wrong. Maybe I'm overreacting, uh, but I don't think he quite ever got all over that deal. It was a real simple thing, man. He, he was tired. He was broke down. He worked a very physical and, and demanding style. I would have had no, no issue whatsoever in saying, okay, you're unbooked. And I'd have got somebody else to go. So, cause a lot of people wanted to go. You think the majority of the talents that want to go to tribute for the troops? Are you insane? They loved it when they got there. They loved the hype of going. They loved when they got back and they got to be on the video packages, but the goddamn sure didn't like to travel on a, on army freighter or whatever the hell it was. So uh, I, there's a lot of guys that didn't want to go, but they didn't have the cojones like RVD to speak his mind. I wasn't there in that mix. Uh, I was at the show, obviously, uh, but I, I thought that, uh, as long as Rob went in to converse and not confront his point would be made and, and heard if he goes in to, to confront and demand it's a, it's just not going to work. Nobody wins now. Thanks for coming. Let's talk about, uh, somebody who is potentially coming and, uh, it's a hot topic in the torch. Wade would write the words made it known to the McMahons that he was uh, opposed to the idea of bringing Heyman back to the writing team from day one. Brian felt that Heyman would attempt to divide the team by creating competition between the two brands, which Brian felt would ruin the harmony that he thought existed between the two writing teams. You've been friends with Paul for many years. Do you remember the talk of maybe bringing him back here and, and maybe the, uh, I don't know the divisiveness about that idea. Of course. Yeah. Uh, Paul casts a long shadow and Paul has been known in his career to not play well with others. I've experienced it firsthand. I've seen it firsthand. This is not hearsay or, or some of that bullshit. on some of these other podcasts that remember in the innuendo shit. This is a fact. The fact is. Paul's hard to do business with at times, unless he is the lead mule. Right. He was the lead guy all his life. He's the only child. Uh, he, he, everything he was, he didn't have to share with siblings. 
He was a very much a, uh, a complex individual, but nonetheless, Conrad, is that he had a bad reputation, some deservedly and some not, some enhanced uh, without a doubt. But I think that, I don't, I don't know, uh, I, look, I got a great deal of respect for Brian Gewertz. He's a very brilliant writer. I know he's doing great things for The Rock uh, on Rock staff. I don't know how much harmony was he's talking about because I was never in that group. Uh, if he says there was, then I'll, I would take his word, but that would be very unusual. It probably hasn't happened since. And this is 2005, so you guys can do the math. But I, I thought that uh, Paul was a threat to a lot of guys because he couldn't be bullshitted. And uh, he, he knew the business. He knew the business uh, infinitely better than anybody on the writing team. Doesn't mean he was the only talented one there, but he knew the product, product knowledge, Heyman would ace a test. I don't think the others could do that. So uh, that was kind of the deal there. But, you know, he, I don't, I thought, you know, Paul came in and did a, he needed, Paul wouldn't need to improve, uh, what I'm trying to say here, he needed to uh, prove himself again. And a lot of us that have had issues with Vince or ins and outs of the company always come back with that same mantra. At least I did. I have to prove myself all over again. And uh, so Paul came in with a purpose and he did a damn good job on SmackDown. You know, he, I thought he, he, he wrote some really good stuff cause I was there for all those shows cause I was producing a Michael Colton Taz. So that was, uh, so I'm, I'm very familiar with what he, what he wrote and he did a good job. So point being is that Paul didn't play well with everybody. Uh, and he had great product knowledge, but again, he had sometimes his patience wore thin and it was his way or the highway. And that's what the other, uh, the other writing team members were trying to avoid confrontation. They didn't want the confrontation because they had enough confrontation, unfortunately, uh, with the boss. It's uh, it's a weird deal because Paul Heyman is, you know, you almost unanimously regarded as being a wrestling genius, but his personality, uh, maybe more of a porcupine, uh, <laughs> let's talk about somebody who did not have that reputation. Ricky, the dragon steamboat, uh, arguably one of the greatest baby face performers in the history of the business. He's coming in, in this era to work as a backstage agent. And I've always been fascinated by this dynamic where some wrestlers just do not have the personality to be a, a great agent. Like I've heard that guys like Barry Windham and Bobby Eaton, they're some of the absolute best wrestlers there ever were, but they couldn't articulate it to, to the younger generation, what they were doing and why it worked. How was Ricky steamboat in this role as a backstage agent? Was it a good fit? Was, was the demand of the, the travel too much? Because that was certainly the rap when he was an in-ring performer. What do you remember of him, of him coming in as an agent here? Well, anytime you get a guy, the quality, the human quality, integrity, character, et cetera, in your locker room, you've heard me say this a lot of times, Connor, about hiring talent. You don't want to, you don't want to bring a chicken into the hen house and let them eat away. It's not good. It won't work. Uh, Ricky was a pleasant breath of fresh air, but I always thought that Ricky would have been much better served. And more importantly, the company would be better served if Ricky had been in Orlando at the performance center, uh, different stress, less travel, uh, more, you know, he, he could be home more, uh, just a better environment. And, uh, I, I thought that was just, uh, 
that was a little bit of a misplay. But you don't know until you try as well. But I don't think it was a great fit for Ricky on the road doing house shows, live events, and the TVs. Uh, He had been off the road for a while. Uh, The man's. And the uh, backstage politics, uh, the community uh, uh, relations, so to speak, uh, a lot of little clicks here, there, and yon. You got to figure out where you fit in. But I think he would have done better in a smaller arena, uh, and that would be done in Orlando. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, we talked about the guys who had, you know, just uh, the it for being an agent. What in a former wrestler? does it take to make a good backstage agent? Are there certain skills or character traits that you look for that you think will translate? Yeah, I think it would be the same thing. If you're an athletic director and you were hiring a coach, the same basic traits, communication skills, reliability, product knowledge, knowing the love of the game, those type things are always boxes you want to check off. But I've always compared it to the fact that uh, all you guys are ever going to be here. Just like me as an assistant. The head coach has got a job for life. He's Vince is like a Supreme court judge. He, he was the head coach and was going to, he will be the head coach until he's no longer breathing. So uh, this is what you need to understand that. So to understand how you are going to work here, you have to acquire and start understanding the philosophies and the procedural things day to day that we're all faced with from Vince. If you are unable to conform to his, to his game, so to speak, uh, the way he does business, in other words, you're not going to make it. Just so you'll know. I'm not threatening you. I'm just telling you, you're not going to make it. But if you can understand the method to his madness, even though you may not agree and probably won't agree, but you can still pull it off. You may not want to run a pass play. You may think that running the ball is the best way to get a first down. He wants to throw it. So guess what you're going to do? We're going to throw the damn ball in the story. And that's kind of where, where we were on that deal. I'm not saying Ricky had was in that exact deep water where he couldn't hang with Vince. It had nothing to do with Vince. I don't think, I think it was more travel, the hustle and bustle, the change, the, the all with constant fluidity. So you get something great done and you, you think it's going to be good for these guys. You put your heart and soul and putting a match together and it's 10 minutes. And all of a sudden they get to the gorilla position and they got four minutes. And a lot of guys feel like that's defacing their painting. So, but Ricky would have been, always been a great, his, Ricky Steamboat would still be a great ad, addition. Anybody that could bring Ricky Steamboat in to work with young talent or talents that need to get better, which is about everybody, is would be a, a, you know ahead of the game. Talk to me a little bit about how that position has has changed over the years. I mean, when you first got involved in the business, I'm sure there was some sort of elder statesman in the back. Uh, certainly, it was common in the '80s and 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 through the '90s, and now here we are in the 2000s. Was there a major change from the demands of the WWE schedule from, from when you first started, it, does it look like a totally different position, the role of an agent? Yeah, it changed, it changed along the times of, uh, when pro wrestlers became sports entertainers and, uh, the wrestling side of the agents, you know, Patterson's and Gurias and Jim Myers, George Steele, you know, all those cats. Strongbow, Lanza, all ex-wrestlers of uh, some uh, success with that, without a doubt. But they weren't entertainment guys. Patterson was the closest thing to an entertainment guy that, uh, of that group I just named. 
because Pat was, you know, very flamboyant and had, he always, Pat liked humor in wrestling. Uh, all the while he'd be one of the most serious, uh, wrestlers in history and, and one of the most successful skilled. But so you, you, you start, you start segueing in from, I'm a pro wrestler to I'm a sports entertainer. And with that change in the, in the, in the, uh, uh, vocabulary came a change in the agents whereby, uh, uh, some booker may say, well, Michael Hayes was never a great worker. He was entertaining and he got, he cut great promos and he had a wealth of charisma. Well, hire him because we're in a sports entertainment business. So that's kind of a, the best analogy I can give you, uh, you know, for, for that, I think, but the, 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 the rules changed. So you had to be more, you had to be fundamentally sound, but it seemed like, and it may be that way today. Maybe hopefully, hopefully it's lessening for all wrestling companies where the entertainment content is more important than the wrestling. And I think that's wrong. All right. Steve Austin is in the news here. He's just signed a three movie deal with WWE and he's going to go on a media tour announcing that stone cold is going to be doing WWE films. And the first project we know is going to be the condemned and, uh, the executive producer, of course, Vince McMahon. <laughs> what do you think of your old pal getting in the movie business with the chairman? Well, it was the next step, you know, uh, Steve always had, and still does, uh, a real loyalty to WWE because God knows he's had plenty of opportunities to go elsewhere and, and do wrestling and in a variety of capacities, but he's very loyal to Vince and the WWE for making him a multi multi-millionaire. Uh, and he doesn't forget the fans or, uh, the, the team. So I admire that, but I think, I think a couple of things in, I think Steve's desire to be in movies was something that had been, he'd had for a long time. Like, like a lot of us, you know, we see our heroes on the big screen, you know, uh, I'd love to have been a, a little John Wayne, but I was too short and fat. So that didn't work. Uh, but nonetheless, Steve knows what he, you know, he, he, I think he had a propensity for that. But the other thing, the other motivating factor was the great one. Uh, we all knew that rock was his days in WWE were going to be numbered as far as a full-time guy or even a, a, a part-time plus guy, nothing. Uh, and I think Steve saw that, that there was rock had a lot of really good people behind him and that they, they assured him that he had a, he had a career. Steve thought he had a career as well. Rock got better products surrounded by more, better, better people, I think. And he got better projects to work on. Uh, not to say Steve didn't have some other things besides condemn, but nothing like the rock has had. So he didn't break through. And that's why Steve saw the handwriting on the wall a few years later and said, you know, I don't have the team around me. I'm not getting the material I need. Uh, and so he went to the television side and reality television. He's found his niche and he likes it. So, uh, I'm not surprised he didn't get, he tried it, but the whole thing's always going to be Conrad. Like in the year, these guys on these talk shows talk about the, we, we were, we had great material. We had great writers. Well, we, a lot of us just bullshit that away. The writing is everything for these movies. I mean, you can't, you can't, uh, you, you have some content, you got a quality. So I liked the condemned and I, I, uh, thought he did a hell of a job in it. And it was an interesting concept, but, uh, the rest of the stuff that he did just unfortunately didn't stick with a lot of folks. And so that, that, uh, movie thing was, was short lived. And I know he's had other roles when he was in the condemned to another condemned 
the movie with uh, Sylvester Stallone and all those dudes, uh, Randy Couture, and everybody, really, really cool movie, Expendables or something. Yeah, that's right. And I like that too. He was good in that. So, but it's a matter of devoting so much time away from family or your dogs in his case, or his uh, four wheeler in his case, to go into a set for that many, and where you can do TV and you can do a whole season of television in a few weeks. So, uh, I, I, there's a lot of variables to it, but I wasn't surprised that he went that route, but it was the next step outside of wrestling to continue a relationship that he wanted to cultivate in a different way than as being the main event star of the company. Well, the other main event star of the company from years past is the rock. And he's in the news here because it looks like his contract is going to expire at the end of 2004 on December 31st. And uh, Wade is saying there's strong signs that a renewal will not be worked out. Here's his exact wording. With Steve Austin reaching an agreement with Vince to return the WWE for the three movie deal, there is a feeling that Vince doesn't believe it's a priority to re-sign the rock. And it's now instead sending him a message that he is quote, not needed. Rock is said to be disappointed. If not upset that a greater effort wasn't made to renew his deal. If he doesn't renew, it's not clear whether or not he would have to shift to calling himself Dwayne Johnson. Since the rock is trademarked by WWE, the odds of rock being a part of WrestleMania this year seemed slim. The idea rock had for WrestleMania was to work a singles match against sting because he wanted to be a part of something special. And the potential of that match taking place may have been the reason Jim Ross in recent weeks started to refer to Shelton Benjamin's previously generic corner splash as the stinger splash. So lots to unpack here. Let's start at the end first though. Were you guys in conversation to bring sting in? And since you knew those conversations existed, hypothetically, is that why you started referring to Shelton splash as the stinger splash? No, it isn't. Uh, that's just what it was. Yeah. That was what the name It's like, I, uh, that's like somebody saying, Hey, uh, he just called a move a headlock. They must be bringing Ed Stranger Lewis in, you know, come on. Uh, it's stupid. So, well, it's foreshadowing and it's no, no, it's just stupid. Stop it. Do you remember them? Uh, do you remember the rock asking for a match with sting at WrestleMania? Yeah, yeah man. Look, we, we, we were trying to recruit sting Conrad since the WCW closed their doors. And then subsequently when he finally got all this money from time Warner that he was owed. And he, we knew he'd be healthy. He'd be refreshed and he'd have a full bank account. He should be a happy guy. And we only wanted him for a part-time role at best to mock, to maximize the investment and, and to not overuse a, 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 an asset that had more matches in him than he had left. So yeah, we were always talking about bringing, we, why not? So, uh, but rock and sting would have been cool as hell. Oh yeah. And I uh, rock, look, the thing about this, I, 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 I may have mentioned this before. Uh, it's worth reiterating as far as bookers are concerned. Um, uh, bookers, uh, find out that the top talents who are going to draw the money and put an ass every 18 inches know exactly who they can and cannot work well with meaning that a great attraction like the rock fighting another great attraction like sting at the biggest event of the year, like WrestleMania, uh, for the first time ever is money and rock. Here's the key though. Rock knew in his heart that he could get a match out of sting who had been dormant for quite a while and without any problem, full confidence. And I believe that too. So anyhow, uh, I, 
Yeah, it was a topic we talked about. But I don't think that not getting Sting was I think this I think the thing was didn't didn't prevent Rock from signing. I just think that he really had a lot of good people in his in his ear and team. He had a look at his future. He made the right call. My God. He's the most box office worthy guy in the in the whole damn entertainment world globally. I'd say he made the right call. Well, he missed that match of Sting WrestleMania. Oh, give me a break. Stop it. God almighty, folks. Well, that was a grab. I didn't want to say that match all my life. Well, watch a goddamn 2K, 2, 2K18 or 19 or 20 or 21 or whatever. And, and eat flat there. Get over it. Let me ask. Do you think this was... Hey, guys, are you looking for a great Father's Day gift idea? I know I was. And I found it a couple of years ago with Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget. And it's a great gift idea for your mom, your dad, or both. You see, Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a -a one-of-a-kind, beautiful hand-painted portrait done by professional artists. You can upload a photo to create anything you can imagine, maybe in a special location or a favorite pet. There's lots of options. You pick the artist, the medium, and you even get to work with the artist to make sure it's perfect. You get started in less than five minutes and you can get the portrait in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded guaranteed. And right now as a limited time offer, get 20% off. That's right. 20% off and free shipping to get this special offer. Text the word Ross to 87204. That's Ross to 87204. Text Ross to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Vince trying to send a message to Rock that he was not needed. I mean, Rock's out here making a name for himself with movies. And, you know, there's an opportunity to bring him back to do some wrestling and Instead, cause you know, whether we, uh, talk about it a lot or not, there was a professional rivalry on some level with the rock and stone uh, and stone cold and just the way you want it, Conrad, just the way you want it competition. I don't have two great quarterbacks as have one and a backup that you pray doesn't get in the game. I want Montana and Steve young on the same team. I want that. So do you think that Vince was trying to, uh, you know, pick a side here? No, I think he was trying to show I'm having a wonderful, uh, uh, screwdriver Tito's and fresh orange juice, man. I, I, I got me such a bachelor pad here. Now I'll get me one of those, uh, those juicers. Oh, there you go. Yeah, man. I'm healthy. I'm healthy as a horse, uh, not old horse, but a healthy as a horse. Nonetheless, I think Vince wanted to say, I think Vince is motive may have been, I'm still running the ship here. And no matter how big you have gotten, I will always run the ship here and overcompensating for uh, one of his own that was hand grown 
that was, you know, we rec I recruited Rock and signed Rock. He'd never been a territory. He'd never been working the Indies. You know, it was uh, we had we hit it off, and I thought he had an amazing upside, and I saw what kind of personality he had. I didn't have to wonder uh, how the High Chief's grandson and uh, Rocky Johnson's son, how athletic he might be. I knew how athletic he was. I'd seen him play high school football on tape. I saw him play for the U in football, Division One national champs. So, yeah, he's an athlete. So I didn't have to worry about that. And when he didn't go into wrestling matches, he was a little puck. So he, under, he had an aptitude for what was going on, which is extremely important. I just think that he, he, he may have needed a little bit of a nudge to go ahead and make that tie. But, you know, over the years, they've, they've all, they seem to be, uh, you know, cause they, they seem to help each other when it's, when it's needed, but on a different level. But I think uh, a lot of folks thought that Vince couldn't control rock. And there was never an issue of control. I don't think, but apparently that was made an issue and, and, uh, and it just, it never worked out. I, but I don't think Vince is taking sides on this deal at all because you know, subsequently he's, he's worked with rock on some big level deals. Think about WrestleMania with Cena, for example. Uh, so yeah, I don't think so. I don't think that was the reason, but you know, did, did the, did the, who's got the biggest yin yang, uh, in the company, uh, theoretically have uh, something to do with it. Uh, pr probably it's built on alpha males. So you guys do the math. Of course there's some to it. One of the things I want to talk about that I found in my research here is when Austin and McMahon are out making the rounds to promote these movies, they appear on January 19th on the Fox sport net show sports net show, best damn sports show period, which I used to watch. And I think a lot of our listeners did. Yeah, me too. But there is an interesting line about the XFL because these are sports guys. So they want to talk to Vince about the XFL. And he says, wrong place, wrong time. And Tom Arnold is asking, you know, he's talking about the XFL failing. Yes. Let's, let's get that right. He, the XFL had failed. As my dad would say, farted and falled. And so let's go ahead. That's what we we're talking about. Um, Tom Arnold is asking if he would have done things differently, if he could redo it. And Vince says, no, he'd do it all the same. And <laughs> I just, I just find that so fascinating, especially since we know now, you know, that he's about to get the XFL cranked up again. You're a, you're a big football guy. Yeah. What, 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 uh, what do you think about the new XFL that we're about to be? I mean, I can't believe it's here, but it's about to be here. Fighting chance. It's got a fighting chance because the TV deals that they have in place with Fox and ESPN fighting chance because they have been preparing for the launch for two years, not 90 days fighting chance because they got some of the best coaches that were available, including my friend, Bob Stoops is coaching the, uh, Dallas franchise, former Oklahoma coach. For almost 20 years. So, uh, yeah, uh, I got a fighting chance. We didn't have it. We didn't know it. Uh, we didn't want to be told, but we didn't have a fighting chance. When we started the other X, the original XFL. You can't put teams together with any kind of chemistry without playing ample uh, scrimmages or exhibition games or whatever the hell you want to call them. Uh, and to, for a team to build chemistry and, and teamwork continuity in, in 90 days. Cause you're putting everything together. You're hell. You still checking out uniforms, man. That week of the show, week of the game. So, uh, I, I, I look, I had the first meeting with Vince after the XFL went belly up. I was on the, his calendar or I mean, it might've been one of our normal meeting times. And I, I called Beth Zaza. I said, just is the, is the boss going to want to meet today? And she's, oh yeah, he's fine. 
He just lost $15 million, I think it was, something like that, some ridiculous amount of money. I'd, I'd walked out on a ledge. Uh, and so I said, so I said basically the same thing. What could we have done differently? He said, not a goddamn thing, JR. The way it was laid out, this is, this is, we, we did the best we could with what we had, but I wouldn't change a thing. And he, uh, he, he lost a lot of money, but he said it was a calculated risk and I would do it all over again because I believe in the concept. So here we are all these, these years later with that same dream that he had about blazing a concept, but he went about it a whole different way. He got real football people to run the XFL. We'll see how good the game is. The quality of football will be better. I have not read all the rule changes and the amendments to the rules. As long as they don't get too hokey, uh, I'm okay with it. But if they're going to deviate too far away from basic football, uh, I ain't, I'm not interested. I don't think that's going to happen. Well, let's keep it moving here. Let's get to the Royal Rumble. The first match on this show, and what a show it is, Shawn Michaels and Edge. And yes, that is the first match on the show. Their feud started back at Taboo Tuesday when Michaels was voted over Edge and Chris Benoit to face Triple H in the World Heavyweight Championship. Uh, and then Edge and Benoit were put into a World Tag Team title shot. Edge would wind up abandoning Benoit during the match, which they won, and then returned later that night to cost uh, Shawn Michaels his title match against Triple H. And then at New Year's Revolution... Mm-hmm. Edge would compete in the elimination chamber for the vacant world title. Michaels is the special guest referee. And during the match, Edge accidentally spears Michaels. And uh, that results in Michaels hitting some sweet chin music on Edge, who would be eliminated by Jericho. And then on the January 10th Raw, confrontation goes down. They're brawling all over the arena. And that gets us to this match. And uh, Wade loved it. He gave it three and a quarter stars. They had plenty of time to start this one. Uh, we should, should mention we're doing two announced teams on this one. It's a joint pay-per-view. So you've got mm-hmm. Michael Cole and Taz introducing the show. And then you and Jerry Lawler preview the first match. Um, edge gets the win here and he's dominated the body of the match. Uh, it's a, a, a nice match. I hadn't seen it in a long time. I did this one. What'd you think? Well, there are two things for that first thing we talked about. Number one, uh, the feud started in, uh, November, right? Now we're talking about January. So you got November, December, January, you got three months, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Conrad? Am I looking at my math? Right? Well, I think Taboo Tuesday was in October. So October, way, I'll be even better. Yeah. You even better to build it up. My point is look at how the booking arc it was then when something was built patiently with anticipation and logically as things are now to where automatically we think that because fans are, uh, are really, uh, uh, you know, they have short attention spans and they're, they're, they're very, uh, click worthy and all that shit. Uh, but, but when you tell great stories, it gives people less reason to, uh, leave your channel, leave the scene, leave the screen. So, uh, that's one thing about that, it, that the, the match meant something because it was built since October. Secondly, uh, the, uh, edge winning was a part of the right thing to do because Sean was over. He was more experienced. He had been, you know, been around for a long time. Uh, we didn't know how much longer he was going to be able to go at any kind of half-assed full-time schedule because of his back. It was time for edge to get his push that bat, the thing that I didn't like about it was there had to be the quote unquote heel finish. Oh, you gotta have a heel finish. Why? Well, uh, I don't know. I saw I read that one. I got a heel finish. 
he he'll lose this heat. Yeah, you 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 can have the heel heat. He the heel can cheat to get the advantage. So he wouldn't have been at the finished position if he hadn't cheated, which the announcers, if they're worth a shit, can point out. And then secondly, had then have the heel said heel use his finish to beat the guy doing the honors. But we you know we hold on to ropes, we hold the tights, we and you know everything that Vince says he doesn't like about wrestling, old school, we did in this in this match. Made no sense to me. I just I didn't get it. So uh, there are two things there. The the bill was very good, and the only last thing, the first match concept. We talked about Eddie Guerrero going in the first match, having to have a meeting with me before the pay per view. He was pissed off. His feelings were hurt. It was disrespected. Blah blah blah. And I until I explained to him how important that first match was, and I presented to him as a challenge to make all these other son of a bitches on this card follow that. Cause I should be close to the goddamn show and I will soon enough. That's your attitude. And he, he swelled up, got Andre size and, uh, just like he did when he drank hard liquor, which was occasionally and, uh, love the guy, but boy, he went out there in that show and tore that son of a bitch up and everybody looked at each other. Like we got to follow that. You damn right. You do. Or you got to try. So the first match has got, he says, I got a unique personality. Uh, Ed should have had a, a, a more stronger win. Cheating to get to the finish is the same as cheating to win. If it's broadcast correctly and executed. So, uh, but I love that match. I thought those guys killed it. I really did. I thought it was one of the best matches that we had in a long time on pay-per-view. I feel like we should mention that, uh, Wade would write this. Uh, Michael surprised edge with an inside cradle for a near fall edge reversed a roll up pin attempt and held the ropes for the win. The pin didn't do much for edge because it was so tainted, but holding his own against an active legend like Michaels doesn't hurt him a good opening match, but one that doesn't aspire to steal the show. What do you make of that last sentence? A good opening match, but one that doesn't aspire to steal the show. Do you think that he's implying that maybe Sean wasn't motivated because it was an opener? I don't know what he's, uh, inferring. I I'm trying to wrap my head around that statement, or it could be Conrad that Wade Keller just made a misjudgment in hindsight, right? As simple as that. But yeah, I don't think, Hey, look, there, there's a full house there. 12,500, every seat sold, every seat's full, certainly. Uh, and two pros, especially with the ego, like Shawn Michaels had and still has as a competitor and the edge was hungry. I signed Edge's first contract. He and he and Jay Resso Christian, I paid him $210 a week. That's what they earned for coming down and training, took care of the hotel. They made a couple hundred dollars a week to train with Dory junior and, and uh, Tom Pritchard. He was always wonderful. And so was junior. We don't give those guys enough credit for what they did to the roster to straighten things out. Fundamental soundness. Uh, and a lot of great teaching Tom Pritchard and Dory junior were an amazing team that may never be replicated again in that role, those, those two roles, but I, I, Sean Michaels is not going to go out there and half-ass nothing. He's not going out there and go 80% unless he's hurt. Then he's going to try to go hundred, but he goes as far as his body can go, but no, I don't agree with that statement. As simple as that. It's not, I didn't die when I weighed. It's just simply, I don't agree with what he said. Easy. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving and let's talk about the next segment here on the show. Wade would write Eric Bischoff and Teddy long talk backstage about whether a raw or SmackDown wrestler would win the 30 man rumble. 
Eddie Guerrero and Ric Flair drew their numbers out of a tumbler. Guerrero hugged Flair and managed to switch numbers. Flair discovered it <laughs> seconds later and ran after Guerrero. Funny. Uh, I, really, I really love that segment. I think it's yeah. one of the highlights of the whole show. Woo! I do too. Take two. Just think of this, folks. How great are the two personalities of Nate and Eddie? How great would it be to see them in another vignette today? God, you miss those moments because those guys are not trained. They're not developed in a system. They had it and guys have it. When they get into the performance center, guys have it. When they first arrive in, uh, AEW, for example, or someplace else, it is imperative and you don't learn it in a camp and you don't learn it in somebody's developmental system. You either have it and you bring it out of yourself. Because if you're, if you have it and you're waiting for someone to bring it out of you, you're a loser. If you don't have the motivation, the self-motivation to make yourself a goddamn pro and learn your skills and raise your game on all aspects of it, then you're not going to make it. Can't, you can't wait on somebody to make you have a charisma. If you either got it or you don't. And, uh, I can tell you that Eddie and Ric Flair obviously had it from day one. Uh, no doubt about that. Uh, next up, this is the recap word for word from the, uh, torch Gene Snitsky and Heidenreich shared an intimate moment backstage, another scene out of Oz. And of course he's referring to the HBO prison series. Uh, what did you think of this segment on the show? It was em- embarrassing. Didn't need to be on the air. It was uncreative. Uh, it was a, a cheap knockoff. Look, I have a. I, I thought Snitsky was always far ahead of the game, more ahead than Heidenreich. John Heidenreich seemed, always was a nice guy. He was a polite guy. But here's the thing, folks. And this is not an indictment or, or being mean to somebody. I don't know that Heidenreich ever fully grasped the process or fully grasped the, uh, had the, uh, you know, the, the feel for the game. He was big and athletic and, did, and looked good. I don't remember having any issues with him that I can recall. Maybe there was, I, I don't know, but nothing serious. Good guy, but he didn't have the aptitude for wrestling. In my opinion, that's all that I may be. And I may be wrong. Snitsky did and put them together. was like the line leading the uh, nearsighted didn't work. So, uh, and the, in, the intricate moment, I mean, you're playing on homeless, uh, on, uh, uh, anti gay bias. Uh, or gay bias, I should say, or, you know, homophobia, uh, all these things. So it, oh, oh, just a rip off of the scene from Oz. No bullshit. What what really was it? What really was it? Well, we know what it was. It was a alpha male vision of what prison gay sex is like. I don't know why that needs to be on a wrestling show, but that's just me. So no, I didn't like it. And I felt badly that the undertaker had to deal with that shit. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. I feel like, uh, let's keep it moving here. We've got uh, Heidenreich and the Undertaker in a casket match on pay-per-view. This is real. The feud starts at no mercy when Heidenreich helps JBL defeat the Undertaker in a last ride match by attacking the Undertaker and putting him in the hearse. And then in Survivor Series, the Undertaker defeats Heidenreich after executing the old tombstone pile driver. At Armageddon, Heidenreich once again cost the Undertaker the title against JBL after interfering in a fatal four-way match involving Booker T and Eddie Guerrero, which allowed JBL to pin Booker T after a clothesline from hell. Then the SmackDown GM, Teddy Long, would let the Undertaker name the stipulation for his match with Heidenreich at the Royal Rumble. And somehow Heidenreich has mentioned his fear of caskets. So of course it's a casket (laughs) match. Uh, they get plenty of time more than you would have imagined for this 13 minutes and four seconds. Kiss of death TV matches that go too long. And I've experienced some of these in my career, uh, past, present, so forth. It's all subjective, but, uh, you know, some things are not meant to go 13 minutes. This was one of those primary examples. You let you, you do your, your great grandiose entrance. You let Heidenreich get a little bit of heat. And, and I mean a little bit of heat. You let the Undertaker take over, come back, put his ass in a casket, and go home. Dong. That's what you do. It don't need to be a longer story than that. Well, you got to make somebody. You know, it's not like Donald Trump. It's not, I, mean, I sound like uh, Stephen Colbert imitating Donald Trump. Well, you've got to make somebody to beat somebody. Well, beat your impeachment. Uh, I don't even know what that means. I'm so uninterested in the impeachment process when I see it. On TV and all my channels, I go to the Weather Channel and hide. Uh, but anyway, have, I wish we could have heard from this Heidenreich match. This is, as you would say, bowling shoe ugly. Oh, horrible! Uh, but because there's uh, a casket match, this is essentially no DQ. There's going to be a lot of rampant interference here from Gene Snitsky, and eventually, when they team up and start dragging Taker towards the casket, Kane pops up out of the casket. So that was kind of cool. The yep. four start brawling. Uh, Heidenreich is struggling to get the Cobra clutch on. It's not pretty. Then he attempts to, uh, get Taker in the casket and eventually Taker comes back and choke slams him, but Heidenreich does not get up for him at all. Just dead weight. He tries to make up for it with the tombstone though, and literally jumps into his arms. Uh, just <laughs> very, very ugly. Maybe and, somebody mentioned something to him between those two moves. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, sure it was Hey, you loaded shit. Loosen up. Help me out. I'm sure it was the deal brother out here. Uh, Wade would say really sloppy spots, bad pacing, poorly executed moves, ruined whatever value it had at certain points, quarter of a star. I hate when, when we're just overly negative, but man, there's just not a lot to compliment on this one. No, Wade was probably right on that one. Quarter star, half star, one star. The bottom line, the match was less than it needed to be by a considerable margin. Whatever that, whatever that means to you. Uh, subjective negatives are same as subjective positives. I mean, it's all subjective. It's opinion. So I'm not saying Wade was wrong, even talking about the, uh, uh, the thing we talked about a minute ago, but I didn't agree with it. That's all. I just didn't agree with it. This is what I agree with. It, it was not, we did not do the undertaker, a franchise player, any favors. And that's the fault of the creative team convincing 
Vince, who then convinced the Undertaker that would be okay and he'd work through this. Because booking the Undertaker with the two guys with skill sets that were so green and unex- inexperienced was not wise. Uh, next up is the match for the WWE title. It's JBL defending against Big Show and Kurt Angle in a triple threat match. The backstory here is on the December 16th SmackDown, Angle was challenging JBL to a match for the WWE title, and the cabinet interfered and attacked Angle, causing the match to end by DQ. Uh, by the way, if you forgot, the cabinet is Orlando Jordan and the Basham brothers. Uh, they continue to attack Angle after the match until Big Show comes out. He beats everyone and then uh, signals to JBL that he wants the title. Two weeks later, this three-way at the Royal Rumble is set up. And uh, as we fast forward uh, to the January 27th SmackDown, right before this show is going to go up, uh, we've got a last man standing match between JBL and Kurt Angle. And they eventually turn on each other. The match goes to a no contest. And it's revealed that the match was, in fact, Big Show's idea. So there's lots of creative ways and political maneuvering in storyline to get to this match. And when the match actually happens, they don't get nearly as much time as you might think for a Kurt Angle match, but it's 11 minutes, 59 seconds. Uh, Wade would say nonstop action with some cool spots. Angle knocks show through the ringside table and later show charges at JBL knocking him through the ringside barrier. When angle charges at show with a chair, he ducks, drops angle face first into it. And then Luther Reigns, Mark Jindrak and the Bashams all attack big show at ringside. Orlando Jordan throws a stun JBL into the ring where he nails angle with a clothesline from hell and scores the pin. Uh, Wade would say good match, just the right length, well executed. And he gave it three stars, lots of outside interference, lots of, uh, Gaga and props. But I really like the match and I do agree with the assessment, nonstop action. And that's maybe not what you expect with big show and JBL. But I think having angle in there who has the energizer bunny mode on kept it going. Yeah, absolutely. Angle was the straw that started to drink in that one. And I, the outside stuff here to here, normally I would say too much. I think he needed it in this match. A little, uh, uh, side of, uh, was a word I'm looking for the slide of hand type thing. You know, uh, you need a distraction here, there and yawn, and you had plenty of toys to play with on the outside. And it also, you want to make sure you protect big show. Uh, even though I don't think the company did a great job protecting him over his whole career with this, with this rampant overexposure, which he did not need. Uh, but nonetheless, I thought that, uh, I thought the match came off much better than people would thought it would, would. Uh, I didn't call that match. That was cold and Taz and I enjoyed their work and I enjoyed watching it. So I, I did think that it was a nice presentation by everybody, uh, and surprised me surprisingly good. Yeah. Go out of your way to watch it. I mean, it really is, you know, in a sea of bad three ways, this one stands out. I don't know that Kurt Angle ever had a bad match and this one's no exception. Three stars, really good match here. Uh, backstage, we would see Carlito cool ask, uh, Batista to sign his petition. Batista said, no, the Bischoff would inform Batista. He was banning uh, him and flair from ringside and a commercial airs with Eugene on a bench spoofing the life is like a box of chocolate scene with Forrest Gump. You saw this for the first time in a long time. what did you think of the promo? Life is like a box of chocolates. I loved them. Uh, it shows you how talented Nick Dinsmore was and still is. There's a little promotion out there in the Dakotas. Uh, good school, good teacher. 
be a good coach for some of you guys that live in that part of the world. Uh, Eugene's a good guy and, and very, very skilled, good teacher. He's one of those guys that can teach. He's a guy that can coach. He's a lot like Tom Pritchard. Both guys are very, very sound, but then, but none of them were major, major superstar main event headliners in every territory they went to. Unlike Dory jr. Who was for the vast majority of his entire life, uh, a main eventer, just different time, different place, different people. But, uh, Nick did a good job. I liked all these, uh, I believe if memory serves me correct, I saw all those promos at one time and, uh, you know, before they aired and, uh, it was just beautiful. I mean, the creative was great. The casting was good. Uh, I liked them all, uh, Conrad, they, they, that was a, they, I thought we did really well with those. I thought that was a real good step in the entertainment side of pro wrestling, the sports entertainment, uh, desire void was filled with those, with those for sure. And whose ever idea it was, uh, is, I don't know if John Gabork was still there then doing that or David Sahadi, but both whoever, whose ever idea it was, maybe it's somebody, maybe Chris Chambers. I don't know whose idea it was, but it was beautiful work. Yeah. I can't argue that at all. Really, really well done. Uh, and you know, Sahani gets a lot of the, uh, the high fives for these type things, but there is a supporting cast behind the scenes, uh, that were a big part as well. And I'm sure we'll highlight them other times, but let's talk about the world title match. You know, this triple H Randy Orton thing has been brewing for a long time, you know, going back to when evolution first split and their feud, I guess, first starts back on August 16th, Orton is kicked out of evolution by triple H after he you know, was successful at, uh, SummerSlam the night before, uh, triple H would then, uh, defeat Orton to win the world title after interference from both Batista and Ric Flair. And then at survivor series, there's team Orton versus team triple H. How about this for a weird pairing? Triple H's team is triple H edge, Batista and Snitsky. Uh, Orton's is Orton, Benoit, Jericho, and Maven. That's a little weird. Uh, it's a traditional uh, survivor series elimination match to earn control of raw after Orton last eliminates triple H, but then at revolution, new year's revolution, that is triple H wins the elimination chamber match to win the vacant world heavyweight title last eliminating Randy Orton. Of course, after more interference from Ric Flair and Dave Batista and on the January 10th episode of raw, uh, Randy Orton gets a win over Batista to become the number one contender for the title at Royal rumble. And, uh, we're, we're on our way. We have, uh, the following week, a confrontation between the two men, Triple H and Randy Orton. Uh, Triple H uh, attacks him backstage in an ambush after the confrontation, and they're steel cha- steel chairs, and Triple H scurries away. Uh, and then finally, uh, we're here at the match. They get plenty of time: twenty-one minutes, twenty-seven seconds. Triple H wins and retains the world title. Well, Wade would say very good match, but it felt as if it was in first or second gear too much without enough energetic kicks in the high gear. Orton sold a concussion concussion before falling to the pedigree, uh, three and a half stars. And this is the start of a concussion angle that they were going to do with Randy Orton. I don't know that you could do that today with, uh, it being such a hot button topic, mm-hmm. but, it, but it worked at the time. Not my favorite match these guys had, but certainly told the story. What'd you think? Uh, strong match, uh, solid at worst. Uh, I always like what these guys got together, you know, two guys I signed, uh, and are actually triple H came in and I renegotiated his deal. Uh, and, and, uh, as after a couple of years there, 
a significant race. And uh, Randy, I signed. He was in that same class with the. Those are the cats we sent to OVW, uh, like Batista, who's on his card, and John Cena, who's on his card. Um, so I I, uh, I like the match, cause, but I'm biased. I really am. I'd be you know, fully transparent. I am biased. Uh, but I liked it. I like what they did. I like the fact that here's another point, Conrad, that we can make here. Uh, we mentioned this earlier in a little different context. This angle started in August. We're in January. When's the last time that a company devoted a, a continual, uh, un, un, a non-disconnected story from August to January? Right. Long time. And the fact is fans will stay hooked to a great story being told if little elements are added to keep it fresh uh, as you go forward. But that's just, I don't know that the writing teams and the, and the bookers and the all the experts have patience to do that, but it's just sad because if you can push your way through it, our fans want better stories being told. And sometimes that you can't do that in three or four TV shows. No argument for me. Let's keep it moving. Let's talk about, uh, while we're really here, it's the Royal rumble match. And this is quite the match. Uh, there's so much. Uh, going on here out first, of course, Eddie Guerrero starting with him, Chris Benoit. Yeah. Conrad, we get to talk about first who comes on, who works for the first show, first match rather of a show, big show. Well, we got, we knew earlier that, uh, that in the opening match was Sean and edge, right? Great opener, star power, highly skilled. They're, they both had agendas. It made sense. Well, then we come back to the first, uh, the kickoff participants for the Royal rumble, Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit, uh, two more guys that we signed from WCW in that coup where we got four of them, Malenko and Saturn as well. So, uh, we knew without a doubt that uh, they were going to start hot physical and you guys are coming out here after us. You better have your shit tied up real tight because this is going to be special. And it was, it was really special. I, I want to mention this. That was the first uh, SmackDown, or excuse me, first uh, Royal Rumble that SmackDown's Taz had ever called, and he was very nervous. And I think the the, the nervousness was twofold or three, threefold. One of the guys, anybody that knows Taz, who I consider a great friend, and I'm I'm glad he's with AEW now. I'm glad I could help that little little bit along the way. Uh, but uh, he's a friend, and he, I'm glad he's with our, on our team. But Taz, unfortunately, worries a lot. And sometimes he worries about hidden agendas that may be there and they may not be there. Again, he's a byproduct of the Paul Heyman ECW. And there was a lot of us against the world and, and fun and games going on, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that influenced Taz's thinking to some degree. Uh, but, you know, he's a, he, he had never done a rumble. So then people said to him, I was told, watch JR now. He'll, he'll hog the broadcast. Well, I went back and listened to that with that thought in mind. And I didn't bogart this dev show whatsoever. It was just a way to stir the shit. And I said, look, you ain't got to worry about me screwing you over. And all I can do is give you my word. This is going to be good. And, and, and that's all I can do. Pete, that's you know, the name, Peter Cernicia. That's all I can do. And I said, and, and you have to trust me. It's not, you should trust me. You ought to trust me. You have to trust me because I have to trust you. And that's, that's kind of where we left it. That, that, that helped bond our friendship, quite frankly. 
uh, and whereby we had a real good strong call, and it was shared, and we all, we both contributed. It was exactly as I had envisioned it, and I'm sure uh, the others as well. But uh, I can tell you this: it didn't hurt. It didn't hurt Lawler's feelings any to set out that uh, that long match. I can promise you. But I was glad to work with that. He did a good job. I want to I want to get that in there because it's important to me to that he's recognized for his work, uh, even though sometimes he was his own worst enemy uh, in the in the playing the mind games on himself, which are I understood why. I get it. I never helped that against him. He's gonna uh, he's gonna T-bone Tazplex you when he sees you for saying that he played mind games on himself. Well, he he can if he wants to. He's already I've broken another candy jar over his head. <laughs> <laughs> That's a callback right there, my friends. Yeah. Uh, let's keep it moving. Uh, as you said, could you start with two better guys than Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit? Uh, but then this is kind of funny, I guess. The third guy out, Daniel Pewter. Man, I just did not remember this at all, but that tickled me. Like, I don't know what I was expecting, but he comes out, he grabs the uh, house mic, tells everyone they're going to witness history. He says he's going to win the Royal Rumble in his first match. He gets in the ring acting all cocky. And then, man, it's time to pay some dues. They absolutely chopped the shit out of him. This was great <laughs> stuff, was it not? Yeah, man. His chest got, looked like a uh, 93.7 uh, ground beef, bright red. Right where it, not a lot of fat in it. There's a lot of uh, bruised uh, tissue and the bruising was significant and quick. Yeah. Those guys, if you want to see, do those guys ever really hit each other? You goddamn right. They do. And so here's an example. Go to the, the second, the third entrant in 2005 Royal Rumble. You'll see exactly what Conrad and I are talking about. Really over the top. You got to see it. Uh, and as if his day couldn't get any worse. Entrant number four, hardcore Holly, yeah. whoever was booking this was fucking with Mr. Pewter. Uh, <laughs> Wade would say dues paying time continues. Ross said, quote, he hates rookies. And, uh, Holly asked Benoit and Guerrero to back down and let him get at him. The crowd is cheering and standing. And of course, uh, Holly nails him with three incredibly hard chops. Pewter is selling it like he was shot. Then Benoit is doing it. Uh, it's unbelievable what they do to this guy. Uh, Holly holds Pewter throat first over the top rope, then kicks him between the legs. And then Holly gives him the Alabama slam, throws him over the top rope at six minutes and three seconds. He's the first elimination, but talk about an initiation into WWE. There it is. Yeah. I, I saw where I said, uh, uh, in the stiffest. And, uh, most intense of ways, Daniel Pewter has been initiated. And I think that there's a, there's a back, obviously the backstory is, is that, you know, maybe Daniel in, in a flippant way, uh, you know, he's a shooter guy, legit, but anybody here's the, here's what always has pissed me off. And as you guys hear the story, hear this analogy, you'll understand. So we say Daniel Pewter, Pewter, excuse me, is a legit fighter. And he was. Great, you know, amateur and all that stuff. Uh, but that's not to say that I don't want Daniel Pewter in my bar fight. Would I want Bob Holly in my bar fight? You goddamn right I would. Would I want Ben and Eddie Guerrero there? You ain't kidding? Because I know what I got with those dudes. So, uh, so it's never to say when somebody's a, a shooter, 
that the other guys are not tough. That's ridiculous to even think uh, or contemplate at all. Well, let's explain what shooter means. Cause I do think that is something that's lost in translation. Shooter and badass are not interchangeable. Shooter mm. just means he knows how to manipulate your joints and hold you down. I mean, he's skilled in the, the martial arts of, of wrestling, amateur wrestling. He, he is a combat sport expert. Yes. He was, he's been highly trained for many years in MMA. He, so he, he had a higher skill level, uh, in that respect than the average pro wrestler. So, but don't discount the pro wrestler for not being a tough guy. Uh, cause we all know you've heard the stories of Dr. Death and Haku and these guys, there's a lot of shooters that want, that wouldn't, didn't want any part of Dr. Death who was a shooter himself and, and, and Haku who just one bad dude. So it's a, it's kind of a confusing thing, but Daniel probably, Daniel said the wrong thing around the wrong guys. You know, he was very confident and look, we thought he was going to be a big star. Sure. Be a real big, be a real big, big star. So, uh, it, it was probably, it was probably in a, in a, at a very unfriendly HR way, human resources way that the lad get initiated and between Guerrero, Benoit and Bob Holly, I thought they took care of that, that task very well. It's uh pretty remarkable, uh, to go back and watch this one out, out next. We've got, uh, and this is different, the hurricane and the hurricane only lasts a minute and four seconds, but man, it was what's, up? All, what's up with that. What's up with that. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> his job is done very quickly. Uh, Benoit and Guerrero take hurricane down with some double teaming. Then Guerrero tries to sneak in an elimination on Benoit Benoit fights back and then backdrops hurricane out. Uh, so, uh, he's out. Oh, we should mention hardcore Holly was eliminated, uh, second. So just like five seconds afterwards, yeah, uh, double team by Benoit and, uh, and Eddie. Right as a after. reward for going above and beyond. So he had to get eliminated by two stars. Next up, we got, uh, Kenzo Suzuki. Benoit's going to go to work on him. And, uh, I guess that's sort of a fantasy booking because, uh, instead of, of going to one show, he went to another and we hadn't seen these guys together. Uh, a lot of people had really high hopes for Kenzo. Why don't you think he, uh, he clicked here in the WWE? You couldn't just didn't connect with the, uh, North American audience is one thing. His lack of being, his lack of being able to communicate was another thing. I don't think it had anything to do with his, uh, in ring skills. Uh, it's just the ad adapting from his culture that he grew up in, uh, and in the wrestling business and the, cause it's different wrestling culture too in Japan than it is here. So he, uh, he, he just, it just didn't connect. Uh, his work ethic was good. Everything was good. Conrad was some guys, you know, he just didn't connect it. We had high hopes for him too. We thought he would be a difference maker. Next up, we've got edge and, uh, he's coming in here at, uh, number seven and Mysterio will come in at number eight. Uh, we should mention that after Mysterio is in, uh, Kenzo is going to get eliminated by Ray. So he'll be elimination number four. Shelton Benjamin is down now at number nine. He's going right after edge. Uh, number 10 is going to be Booker T and Eric Bischoff are going to come, is going to come down to ringside. Teddy long will be there too. And they're going to sort of watch the rest of this match together as everyone's fighting. Uh, Chris Jericho is charging the ring full speed at number 11. Luther Reigns walks out at number 12 and Jr. says if, uh, he wins, it would quote shock the world. <laughs> and now 
the, this is something that they set up with the GMs coming out. It's sort of raw on one side, SmackDown on the other, and it becomes sort of four on four where it's Benoit and edge and Jericho and Benjamin against Ray Booker reigns and Guerrero. I got to tell you, when I watched this one back for the first time in a long time, I can appreciate how this match was put together at this point. I don't imagine it's Pat Patterson who would have been putting these matches together. Oh man. I know Michael Hayes got involved in that process at some point. Just don't know what long, where Conrad was, was Bruce there in 2005. Yes, he was. Then Bruce had been involved. He did a real good job because he learned a lot from Pat, Pat's idea. And all the little nuances where you stack them, then you have somebody clean the hat, clean the shelf, to, you know, all those type things. There's a psychology within the match that we're talking about here now that we've all seen, uh, in, you know, in recent times, there's a story within the, the within the match that is worth telling that should take you to, uh, something significant at WrestleMania. We know that the winner of the Royal rumble meets the champion of his choosing. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that. There should always be at least two or three other stories that are forwarded or started, not finalized. You can't finalize them, but forwarded or started within the rumble match itself. So uh, that's kind of what we're seeing out here, here to, to it, it, all about building the SmackDown brand. What's interesting is as, as we've got sort of teams here, Raw on one side, SmackDown on the other entry. Number 13 is Muhammad Hassan. He's got major heat. He's walking out real slow. The crowd's chanting USA. He's going to bow in the ring and pray towards the sky. And then everyone surrounds him. Jericho takes the first shot and then everybody else joins in. So even though we were just divided in half, now everybody works together to eliminate him. He only lasts 54 seconds. Uh, coming out next is Orlando Jordan. He's got a huge smile on his face. Um, and we should mention that. Uh, it starts to get a little more rapid fire. Scotty too hottie is out and he's attacked by Muhammad Hassan before even entering the ring. Then we've got Charlie Haas out at 16, Renee Dupree at 17, Simon Dean only lasts 20 seconds at 18, Shawn Michaels at 19 and then Kurt Angle at 20. And as soon as Kurt Angle's in there, he's right out by Shawn Michaels at 37 seconds. I know that. Kurt had already wrestled earlier in the night. So it's Sean. Did it surprise you that that was such a quick elimination and they didn't try to make more of a run with two big talents like that? Oh, a little bit, but sometimes the old booking philosophy is, is that if a top guy is going to lose, then you lose very quickly. So it's, it's, it's fluke, like fluke, like, I mean, the new word, uh, might be a t-shirt Conrad fluke, like, like relationships, marriages, investments from friends, things like that fluke, like. And, uh, so that was the deal for big guys quick. Cause they, then they, they could get back on TV and have a bitch or the announcers that have something to hang their hat on and so forth and so on. So that's, that was a philosophy. I'm not telling you, I agree. It's, it's a case by case deal. So I'm not telling you, I agree with it, it on every case, but, uh, getting Kurt in, getting him out. And also too, I don't know, uh, Conrad, we don't know, uh, Kurt had historically had that bad neck. And so it might, something like that. He could have some been problematic too as well. So maybe we, we thought that that's all he, he gave us everything he had. And that was enough. Let's keep it rolling here. We've got uh, quite the finish coming as you can imagine. Uh, entry number 21 is Jonathan coachman and he lasts 13 minutes and 48 seconds, which is just remarkable. Uh, then we've got Mark Jindrak out 
at 22, Viscera at 23, Paul London at 24, John Cena at 25, Gene Snitsky at 26, Kane at 27, Batista at 28, Christian at 29, and then the Nature Boy himself, Ric Flair, comes in at number 30. Uh, he only lasts one minute and 58 seconds here. But what everybody remembers about this is the big elimination. Um, you're sitting there ringside. It's hard to imagine this getting as sideways as it does. Talk to me a little bit about what you remember at the end of this match. Well, we loaded it up with star power at the end. We still got, uh, 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 Eddie, I think Eddie and Ben are still in there. You know, they've been, I think, uh, both, uh, I know Eddie was in there or Ben Wallace was in there. I think Eddie was in there too. Uh, but in any event, we, the, the damn thing was backloaded in a real nice way. But you know, when you get down to the final four, which is always a key moment in the match and I, which I pointed out, we're down to the final four edge, Mysterio, Batista and Cena. I mean, that's the cream of the crop for us. Uh, edge is a young guy. We want to get a push to, uh, Ray never heard him to get him a win. Uh, Cena was over. He, he's, he was Teflon, but the, 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 the under the, the circle name on the, on the booking sheet was Batista. This was Batista's Royal rumble to win and Batista's Royal rumble to become a star. And it would take him to he- headlining WrestleMania, but man, it, it seems awful simple when I explain it that way, but it, it was far from simple because there. So we had the double elimination and I went back and watched this again. Batista got off balance. He caught Cena near the ropes with, with Batista's back to the ropes gets off balance. They both go with the top rope and by simple luck, simple luck. Cause we looked at that goddamn replay to us ad nauseum. It looked to me like until this very day, they both landed at the same time. And, uh, so that means that there was no winner. Then Vince comes out walking, you know, like he's got a cob up his ass. Hang on. Before we get to that, let's talk about this. So. We're down to these last two, the two top baby faces, mm-hmm. John Cena and Batista. One's a raw guy. One's a SmackDown guy of battling for a minute. They're both blocking each other's signature moves. They go over the top rope. It looks like they land at the same time. Two refs raise Batista's arm, two refs raise Cena's arm. That all feels like that is 100% storyline as planned. Was that the way you remember the finish No, being written? No, of course not. So what and of course it? No, it wasn't, <clears throat> but here's the thing. The, the referees are getting their, their the referees are getting their, their, uh, instructions in their ear, in their ear. So it wasn't like they, it was a finish and they just decided to go all of them agreed on, with using tel- telepathy to have this finish, uh, we're going to raise their hands. All the SmackDown refs are going to raise Cena's hand and the raw refs are going to raise Batista's hand. And then here comes Vince at the end to, because it really wasn't a, the, there was nowhere that those participants that his name could go. They couldn't make the final final. Uh, and of course you got a SmackDown guy and a raw guy. So you can't say, well, the general manager should have got together. Well, that would have been a pissing contest. It would have gone nowhere because Teddy Long is going to vote for Batista and Eric or vice versa. Eric's uh, Long's a SmackDown guy and Eric is a raw guy. So it would have gotten nowhere. So the only guy that could settle this dispute, uh, was, uh, judge Judy, judge Judy McMahon. And he comes walking after like Conor McGregor tries to emulate Vince, which I think is hilarious. And somewhere along the way, as he was getting in the ring, 
everything, the, in, the, uh, the, the, the physics were all in place, unfortunately for the chairman. Yeah. So and that, it, you it's, know. he's running down here and his typically, you know, comically exaggerated swagger. And when mm-hmm. he gets near the ring apron, he's going to do what he sees all the boys do. And that's just try to jump up and slide in, but he's nearly 60. And when he goes to do that, he manages to tear a quad. He doesn't jump high enough. His right thigh bangs very hard against the uh, bottom edge of the ring, the very hard edge. And he manages to uh, get under. And when he goes to stand up, his leg gives out from underneath him and he collapses. Yeah. It's, un- it's uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. Disturb- yeah. Disturbing to watch back for me because I was had a that great view right there at ringside for folks that don't know, uh, the thigh muscle is called the quadricep femoris which means uh, that's Latin. It means four-headed thigh muscle. And anytime a uh, ball player gets a torn quad, uh, it is uh, career threatening without a doubt. So the four-headed thigh muscle rolled up his leg. He had to be in amazing pain. And he didn't and sell it at all. Shit. Not a bit, man. Well, Nothing. Let's talk about this. It's the most painful injury. Like uh, wrestling fans would remember the, the very famous Chris Benoit and, uh, Chris Jericho tag team match against stone cold and triple H on raw way back when in 2001, and he's got uh, triple H is about to do the uh, pedigree on the table. And when he does his leg gives out and he tears his quad and he somehow powers through and finishes the match and then has to be helped from the back or helped to the back air. All plans are out the window. He's going to be on the sidelines for a long time, makes the big comeback at Royal rumble two and. And we're back in the game and off to the races, but it sidelines, you know, the tippy top act. And now this is a much older guy who, uh, probably has no business being in the ring. He's not supposed to be here. This isn't the plan, but he's a little panicked and has to go make it right. So let me just go mm-hmm. down there and, and, and do it. And when he does, it's maybe a little overzealous and tears it, but can't sell it because he's on TV. So he, you see him very quickly grasp his leg. But then he just stretches it out plain. You see the big gulp. He sucks it up and doesn't sell the pain at all. I don't think it was overzealous whatsoever because as it boiled down, as the story unfolded and, he, and you're doing live theater, you got to make a call an audible. That was the only call we had. This is a finish of a major, major pay-per-view leading us into WrestleMania. There had to be some, some finality there. And the only person I could rule and judge on finality was the chairman. That was Mr. McMahon. I just think it was a freak thing, man. Uh, because here's the deal. He put, he tore the other one walking through the curtain. Yeah. That's worth mentioning. He has to have a little bit of help getting to the back, but he's still wanting to do it on his own. He should not be walking at all. Uh, but because he's so bullheaded, he tears it. The other one on the way back. Now mm-hmm. he is essentially unable to move. He has totally screwed himself and result in, in him having to go see Dr. James Andrews and get major surgery done. Uh, but of course he still doesn't want to sell it and says he's still going to be a TV and not miss anything. And just an unbelievable, like out of a movie scene. So to mm-hmm. recap, Batista was supposed to be the winner. Uh, there's a bit of a snafu. This had to happen. Eventually both of the guys go out. Now they've got to call an audible. Vince runs out, says, restart the match. They get it right. And when Vince is trying to ease back to his position with one toward quad, fucking tears the other one. This is like out of a movie. It's a comedy of errors. It's Murphy's law. Yeah. I walked through the curtain unaware that he had torn the other one. 
uh, you know, we, we did our hype going off the air and WrestleMania, Batista, the animal, blah, 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 and all that stuff and trying to sell and create a, uh, awareness as always. So I don't have any clue. You know, I just thought we, Taz and I did our first call together in that, in that, in that arena. Everything seemed to be okay. Other than the, you know, the, I didn't know what was wrong with Vince for sure, but we got the finish in, we got our business done. We got the guy hand raised that we wanted who we wanted their hand raised. I walked through the curtain on the way through, through, through the gorilla area and their events was sitting on the fucking floor. And somebody said he tore the other one. I said, what? Yeah, he tore the other one. So I go over to him and he said, God damn it. JR don't say nothing. <laughs> you know, I was giving a little empathy and he said, just take care of the goddamn boys. All right. You got it, chief and get everybody out of here. So he, everybody got away from him except family. So he was, it was, he, it was a traumatic, stressful, uh, you know, I'm sure the, his goddamn anxiety level was up the roof. Why wouldn't it be? Right. So it was a, it was a hell of an experience. And then, uh, we had, uh, you know, to work through the phone and, you know, I talked to Vince on the phone because I was going to go see him in the hospital to go over business. He didn't want anybody around him. He was, he was just so pissed off at himself. He didn't want to deal with anybody else into the patients to deal with himself or anyone else, uh, at least at that point in time. So it was a, one of the most bizarre, uh, pay-per-views. It may be the most bizarre pay-per-view. You know, we talked bizarre. We had talked about Owen's situation, Kemper arena. That's a whole different ball game, folks. Whole different ball. Don't bring the reality of that into two torn quads. Okay. But uh, as far as uh, that's concerned, aside from unfortunate death, it was far the most bizarre occurrences and him tearing the second quad walking through the curtain, uh, was just, uh, un I would never have thought that in a million years, but boy, it was a fact. Yeah. It's crazy to think about. You got to go back and watch this and see it for yourself. Really something else. Um, and it's worth mentioning that, you know, we, we have our sights set now for WrestleMania. We know what that's going to look like. Batista has won. And we've set up some other stuff here on the match as well, or on that WrestleMania card. Uh, what'd you think watching this one back for the first time in a long time? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. Yeah. Fun show. Thumbs up. I, I enjoyed, uh, the efforts. I thought, you know, I can, I, I can't get too much, uh, Eddie and Chris Benoit. Maybe I'm not supposed to say that. Uh, but or who would tell me not to say it? I can say anything I want. It's our show, right? Conrad. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, as a wrestler, I can't get enough of Benoit as a wrestler, uh, Eddie, God bless them both. Uh, no matter how they left earth, left our, 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 our being, uh, I loved, uh, what we're trying to do with edge. Uh, I saw, I could see where some of the young guys are getting an opportunity to maximize their minutes. And subsequently they did and went on to do great things like going to the hall of fame, win multiple titles. And that all for edge started at $210 a week. Uh, he soon made a lot more than that folks. I promise you he did really well. Uh, but you know, and then seeing two guys that we sent and we signed and sent to OVW in Louisville, uh, specifically John Cena and Dave Batista in the ring at the same time, uh, at the main event of, of Royal rumble was very fulfilling for me. Uh, 
So, you know, a lot of wins for me to go back and watch this as to where some of these, these guys have gone. And I was pleasantly surprised. I'd forgotten about some of the guys that were actually made a, a, a drive-by in the Rumble, even though they were, some of them weren't there too long. But I forgot some of them were even in that damn thing. So it was a, it was a fun trip down memory lane. Uh, but the McMahon stuff after the show and, and his, his surgery, not too many hours after the, uh, after the, uh, event was, uh, it was crazy cause he, you know, he, look, 99% of the stuff goes on that company. Vince has got his hand on and directly or indirectly. So his demands for his time were un- unfathomable, but I monitored it and managed, you know, uh, the best I could, my, what I was asked to do, but, you know, Laurinaitis has had a talent, right? But Vince said, you got to help me out here. I did. I did. So that's what we do for each other in this business. And I'm excited for next week, Jim, because we're getting in our way back machine. I'm really excited because we're going all the way back to 1990. Uh, this show went down on February 6th. So this will be the 30 year anniversary next week. It's clash of the champions. 10. It went down at Corpus Christi and, uh, of course it was live on TBS, the Texas shootout clash. The opening match is Dr. Death against the Samoan Savage with Oliver Humperdinck. Then we've got Brian Pillman teaming with Tom Zink. Think on the mod squad. Then we've got, Hey Conrad, do you think, uh, Justin Roberts looks like Tom Zink a little bit. I can see that. Somebody told me that the other day. I said, I thought he looked like George Hamilton jr. Yeah. You're right on that. You're closer. Uh, th- this next match is something I'm sure we'll spend a lot of time on. Mill Maskers taking on Cactus Jack. Cactus Jack is on TBS here, and man, he's making the most of it. I don't want to spoil it, but let me just say it's one of the biggest bumps in wrestling history. Uh, next up, we've got Norman the Lunatic and uh, Kevin Sullivan in a False Count Anywhere match. The Road Warriors are in there with the Skyscrapers. Uh, that's a barn burner. The Steiner Brothers taking on Doom. It should have it should have been a barn burner. It should have been a barn burner. If everybody came in with the same mindset of, I can't put him over. I can't sell that. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Then, then why do we book the fucking match? I can't do, well, I can't do this. I can't do that. It's play fighting. Come on. Be realistic. Uh, also fun. The Steiner brothers and doom it's title versus mask. So if doom loses, they have to unmask. And of course the Steiners are putting up their belts. And then we've got the four horsemen which is Rick, Ole, and Arn Anderson taking on Gary Hart International, the Dragon Master, Buzz Sawyer, and the Great Muda. But famously, Sting is supposed to be a part of this match, but he gets kicked out of the horseman earlier in the match, and he's replaced with Ole Anderson. So there's a lot of great talent, a lot of great matches here, but what the show was remembered for the most is kicking Sting out of the horseman and then there's the big brawl at the end with the cage where Sting is coming back to get his revenge and he tears his fucking knee. So two weeks in a row, we've got shows where the last match, something doesn't go according to plan and somebody's yeah. hobbling away. Sting's patella, i.e. the kneecap, uh, tore away. I, ironically, I had that same injury my senior year in high school playing football and it is a painful Son of a bitch. Let me tell you, cause that kneecap lays in those nerves, gets out of place. You got to put it back in place. And if it's so, if it's so badly distorted and, and out of position, then all of a sudden, uh, you got to have major surgery. Unfortunately for sting, his patella was completely wrecked. And so he had to have the Dr. Jim Andrews in Birmingham, Alabama, roll tide surgery. 
and, uh, but we lost our top baby face. And that night was a major issue in the development of sting and where it would all finally end up and what could have been if his uh, service and his build had not been interrupted by this patella injury. Uh, you and I are going to spend like a whole week together and we're going to get the week kicked off next week, uh, with AEW in town on Wednesday, pick up your tickets. Now, AEW ticks, that's AEWTIX.com. And then later that night, supershowlive.com for Tony Schiavone, Jim Ross, and myself. And don't miss us across the pond next weekend. Gosh, time flies, man. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, until then we'll see you next week right here on grilling Jr. With the voice of wrestling, Jim Ross, only on Westwood One. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.